Welcome to Canada Reimagined. I'm Patrick Esmond White. This episode, The Last War. It's a truism that to have peace, you prepare for war. So, is Canada prepared? Is Canada safe? Globally, our security is linked to our southern ally, the American superpower that's been described as an insurance company with an army. We just have to hope it remains a democracy, and I'll get to that. The Americans spend 3.5% of their GDP on the military. In dollar terms, that's 40% of all global military spending. It's big business. Canada has been accused of freeloading, hiding under the American nuclear umbrella. Whether that's true or not depends on what we see as the threat. So let me look at our military with fresh eyes, taking into account the concept of a grand strategy and the need to support our allies, and also the realities of climate change and demographics. Canada spends 1.3% of GDP on the military. That's a bit below the NATO average, but not by much. It's still a big chunk of money. So how much should we spend, and on what? That's as much about politics as it is about national security. In economics, you hear the classic choices between guns or butter. It's a false choice in the sense that it's never really an either-or situation. We need butter, we also need guns. The trick is to get the balance right. That's where politics muddies the water. To know how much we need to spend on guns and on which guns, we have to know what threat we'll be facing in our next war rather than the last war. So here's what we have today, 2023. Canada has a defense policy that promises the military will be, and I quote, strong, secure, and engaged with a long-term vision and the flexibility to respond to a changing world. Generally, all our political parties agree with the broad principles of this policy. They're admirable ideals. I certainly don't oppose them. But these are simply statements of principle. The reality, the boots on the ground, as they like to say, is very different. I say this knowing that the military is trying to innovate. The Defense Department is playing with ideas like crewless aircraft and robotic weaponry, but only a little. Canada currently spends around $27 billion on defense. Throw in related costs from intelligence agencies to veterans affairs and you get almost 20% of our federal budget of $500 billion. It is a lot of money. We have 68,000 men and women serving full-time and 27,000 reservists. Fewer than 4,000 serve overseas. Somewhere between 10 and 17,000 military jobs are vacant, with far too applicants to fill these spots. The Americans, by the way, are also far short of their recruitment goals. Why so few applicants? It's the culture. To start, young families simply don't want the military lifestyle. The pay is not great. Housing costs are high. Then, the military is constantly in the news for all the wrong reasons, sexual assault, racism, right-wing extremism, and cover-ups. Why would any sensible woman want to enlist, 
or gays or people of color. It's a career in which harassment seems to be endemic. Worse, the abusers seem to be the ones protected. Yes, yes, it's only a few bad apples in the barrel, but the bad apples are there and the dysfunction is demoralizing to the good men and women in military service. Reform is painfully slow. Efforts to change the culture are stymied and access to information is a joke. Next, consider the weapons a recruit might have to work with. Canada has fewer than 140-year-old fighter jets, many of them second-hand, well past their best before date. We have placed an order for 88 F-35s that will eventually cost around $44 billion. Every part of this contract is a scandal. Next, Canada intends to purchase 16 Boeing P-8 surveillance aircraft for $8 billion. These apparently face problems with parts and reliability. Surveillance is a good thing. This purchase is not. We have a handful of Navy frigates. Canada is about to build 15 new ones at a cost of over $60 billion and rising very quickly. We have four attack submarines, old second-hand sieves. Finally, we have a few smaller ships to patrol a quarter million kilometers of coastline. There are plans for seven new icebreakers for the Coast Guard at a cost of $8.5 billion. Canada is also planning to spend tens of billions of dollars on joint U.S.-Canada radar and defense systems. That's the big-ticket hardware and defense spending, with a caveat that all the costs keep rising. Military procurement is a national embarrassment, wickedly expensive and decades over schedule. NATO has determined that every member should spend 2% of GDP on defense. NATO also sets rules on what can be included in this spending. To get to 2%, members have little choice but to buy or build expensive weapons. Sure, Countries can negotiate domestic benefits, but the pressure to buy ships and planes never ceases. Naturally, Russia and China, for their part, fear the power of the United States, and they keep pace. That's the essence of an arms race. Nobody can risk falling behind. It's a dangerous planet. Some countries build weapons to expand their power. Others, wanting peace, prepare for war. The nuclear club, by the way, is a league of its own. Canada, like most countries, said no to nukes. Major powers, including Israel, see nukes as the ultimate in security and prestige. If you have nuclear weapons, every enemy knows that an attack would be suicidal. It's a strategy called mutually assured destruction, or MAD. Arguably, MAD works. Nobody has used nuclear weapons since World War II. The problem is, it takes only one madman to say to himself, if I can't win, everybody loses. That's the very scary wild card. My preference is for arms reduction, but that's not the reality today. Canada, while not in the nuclear club, is under relentless pressure to spend more on defense, so bowing to pressure, we're buying all these ships and planes. There are two problems. First, they'll be obsolete on delivery. And second, they're designed for the last war, not the next one. 
Interestingly, a new concept paper prepared for Canada concludes that we're in a war already with China and Russia. It recognizes that the threats and solutions have changed, but the paper seems to suggest lots more spending rather than make difficult choices. War has evolved, but the old habits remain in place. Ukraine and Gaza show us the new battlefields. It may look a lot like World War I, Brutal trench warfare, landmines, cluster bombs, tanks and artillery, street-by-street street combat with civilians in the middle. Look again. The Ukraine war looks primitive only because NATO's response is very restrained, designed to avoid escalation. It's a grind. To stop short of a mad nuclear war, NATO's grand strategy is to do everything they can short of triggering an uncontrollable crisis. It's actually very sensible. If there is any good news from that brutal Ukraine war, it's this. When it ends, Russia will be militarily exhausted and unlikely to engage in a major conventional conflict for decades. But first, Russia must lose. The Israel-Gaza conflict teaches a different lesson. Of course, the horror is overwhelming. It's also a cautionary tale of failure by all sides to have a grand strategy. For decades, the Palestinians refused to accept half a stale loaf when offered. Now they have no loaf. Equally, Israel and the United States let radical Zionist extremists, so-called settlers, provoke the crisis they, too, wanted the whole loaf. But, finger-pointing aside, look at how both wars are being fought. Drones, artificial intelligence, cyber warfare, smart missiles, satellite surveillance. These are taking over. They are the future of combat, the weapons of the next war. So, how do Canada's new weapons stack up? 88 F-35 fighters at half a billion dollars each intended to patrol the North, obsolete and unnecessary. The American XQ-58A fighter drone, using artificial intelligence, is even now being tested. At one-twentieth the cost of an F-35, these drone fighters will fly in coordinated swarms with no frail human passengers. They could be in service before we even see our F-35s you can be sure our foes will have something like the XQ in the works. Our frigates? Obsolete. These ships can't hide from satellites and other surveillance. They'll be multi-billion dollar sitting ducks to underwater drones. In any case, they're lapdogs compared to the big dogs of the American fleet. Then, our icebreakers. There is nothing they can do that cannot be done better, cheaper, in other ways, except break ice. But then the North is melting. Patrol the borders? Spend billions on radar and surveillance aircraft? There are ways to do it all better and cheaper. More on some of that next week. How about service to indigenous communities, scientific research, search and rescue? These are services touted by the military. Once again, Airships and hydrogen-powered aircraft, including drones, could do it all. The problem for the military 
indeed for government generally, is that when given a new task, nobody can say, fine, but here's what we're going to stop doing because we can't do it all. Politicians always say, do more with less. They refuse to set priorities or make tough choices. Then they wonder why government services, like the military, are thin when called upon. Not convinced by all this? Okay, let me turn to another tool to assess Canada's military strategy, risk management. Risk management is a well-established technique. You take a danger and estimate how likely it is to occur. Next, ask how severe the worst consequences would be. Then you ask if there's anything we can do to mitigate the risk. And finally, what's the cost? All this is the basis of a rational priority-setting process, and it's nothing new. Risk management applied to national security would give Canada a picture of the threats, what we can do, and at what cost. We could then prioritize spending on threats that are high risk, high consequence, and where we can actually make a difference. That type of logic is not obvious in our military strategy. It probably exists in secret, it should be transparent. Openness is not a strength of the Defense Department. Consider nuclear war as a risk management case in point. However likely nuclear war may or may not be, it would be totally catastrophic. So what can we do? If it starts, nothing. But to avoid it, working with our allies, we can deter high-risk conflict and avoid confrontation. That's the key argument in favor of a strong democratic military alliance like NATO. The alliance deters attack. When there is no deterrence, as in Syria or Crimea, Ukraine, enemies are emboldened. Note, however, that this does not define which weapons are right for Canada. That's a decision only Canada can make. Countries everywhere build their military to fit their circumstance. Some of this is to support allies. The first step for Canada would be to decide what we need for our defense and then what we can bring to the table for allies. So, how should we spend our defense money? For that, we look to risk management and the specific threats. Do we need a multi-billion dollar North Warning System? The threat it responds to is that Russia, China, or even North Korea may launch a nuclear strike. But if it occurs, the NWS simply gives us time to kiss our ass goodbye. It's game over. It's therefore a waste of money. How about our military helping mitigate the risk of war in Europe? That war is already happening. We're not directly involved. To keep that war from becoming catastrophic, the NATO strategy is to support Ukraine as much as possible but avoid escalation. If American support for Ukraine should end, the risk would escalate dramatically. Canada helpfully provides both financial and military aid. All good. Nothing Canada can do alone, however, will turn the tide. Ukraine is an expensive proxy war. It's destined to drag on into exhaustion. Reconstruction for Ukraine democracy after the war will be money well spent. That's the nature of a proxy war. Next, 
How about the risk that the Russians or Chinese will invade the ice-free Arctic to mine or drill for oil? Probability? Zero. Our adversaries have lots of resources, including oil and gas. The business case for China or Russia to do this makes no sense. High risk, low reward. Next, the risk that the Chinese take the shortcut to Europe through the Northwest Passage. That would be for trade, not combat. It's very likely but risks can be mitigated if we have an international agreement. The Northwest Passage can be defended relatively easily since the choke points can be blocked. A specific threat, a specific solution. Well, what about the threat that China will invade our allies, Taiwan or Japan? Certainly, these are possible. The probability depends on whether there is a strong deterrence those countries have their own defense strategies. Both have the wealth to buy weapons. Both have the backing of the United States. Nothing Canada has will change that basic equation. An invasion of either country by China would of course mean a huge war and uncontrollable chaos. China is far too strategic to make this mistake. Russia made it in Ukraine and is paying the price. So ahead, we can expect Chinese jets and warships to pester Allied patrols, as accidents do happen, but expect a lot of bluster, battleship diplomacy. Taiwan and Japan, with American support, have real deterrence that will give China reason to pause. Canada's contribution is puny. This then frees up Canada to address other problems of which there are plenty. Which brings me to the heretical question. Do we really need a traditional Army, Navy, and Air Force? Our forces are weak and far from any foreseeable war front. They're in disarray and disrepute. Any major conflict will 100% certain involve our allies. Canadian ships and planes would be an auxiliary force taking orders from the big dog. So, what if we decided instead to develop tools that are different, Canadian, forward-looking, but totally supportive of a grand strategy for democracy? Our unique circumstance with no enemies in the neighborhood gives us the freedom to reimagine defense. The Canadian military seems to grasp that we are focused on the wrong risks, planning for the wrong war. A real threat is to democracy and from economic warfare, terrorism, climate change, and demographic chaos. We can mitigate but not eliminate all these risks with a grand strategy. We determine what we want the world to be like in half a century. We imagine this future where democracy thrives, the environment is protected, and uncontrollable crises are avoided. We develop a defense strategy accordingly. You've been listening to Canada Reimagined. I am Patrick Esmond White and totally responsible for what you've been listening to. I'd like to thank Tom Plant for my theme music, Tom Evans for the art, and Harbinger Media for allowing me to be part of their wonderful collective of Canadian independent podcasters. Tune in again next week. <laughs>